Um, what we're looking at throughout this series on Acts that we've entitled Gospel Movement is the way that the gospel moves in the lives of people, transforming those who proclaim it and transforming those who hear it. I know it is a lot of history, and uh, last week we covered chapters 1 through 5, and this, like I said, is the second week of a 10-week series, and so we're really going to move through this book. It's 28 chapters. We're going to move quickly, but my goal is that throughout this series, you're going to see kind of the forest, you know, where you're going to see the whole picture of the book of Acts, unless it just seems like too much. I was talking to my buddy this week. He's my good friend, and I'm kind of in like a book club with him, and he's on week 33 of his series in Acts, and he's in chapter 15, so... I am moving faster than him, so be thankful for that. And my buddy, I'm sure, is doing a great job, but I don't think I have the ability to keep your attention that long. <laughs> anyway, Acts chapter 6, verses, uh, we're going to start in verse 1, but before we get, I want to I just gear your attention to something first. I want to I do just a very short amount of review. Last week, we talked about the Uh, start of the church in the first five chapters. And what we were really talking about were events that took place 50 days after Jesus's resurrection. Very short. That is not like years, decades, centuries later. That is weeks later. Jesus has risen from the dead. He has spent 40 days being seen by hundreds, if not thousands of people, including his disciples and teaching them. And now he has ascended to his father, And 10 days after that ascension, when he goes up to heaven and gives the great commission in which he says, go into all the world, make disciples, you know, teach them to obey everything I've commanded you, uh, you know, and baptize. 10 days later, Peter gives a sermon in a house in Jerusalem in which the spirit of God comes on the men and the women hearing and the church is born. His sermon goes something like this. This Jesus, who is God, came to earth, and you killed him, and God raised him from the dead, and now what are you going to do? The people's hearts are broken of their sin as they hear Peter speaking, and they say to Peter, what should we do? And Peter says, repent. We're going to see it in a moment. In Christianity, and often it's like this in your household too, I'll get to that in a second, but in Christianity... The preaching of sin is always an opportunity to repent. Always. You know, it's like if your wife says, I don't like when you do that, that is your opportunity to not do that anymore, right? The preaching of sin is always an opportunity to do the opposite. And they say, what should we do? Chapter 2, verse 37, and Peter says, repent and be forgiven. And that is exactly what they do. 3,000 men And women place their faith in Jesus and the church is born and they share their possessions and everybody, uh, their possessions are dispersed and everybody has enough and there's this idyllic picture of love and, and sharing. And the opposition in the first five chapters comes from the Jewish religious leaders, the very men who had killed Jesus. And as these apostles, Peter and James and John, as these men continue to share and to preach, the power structures of the religious leaders, just as they were threatened by Jesus, are now threatened by these men, the apostles. And on different occasions, they have them arrested, and then they let them go. They have them arrested again, and they flog them. And no matter what they do, they can't stop them from sharing the good news, which is a very simple news, that Jesus is God, that he came to earth, that he died, 
and that he rose from the dead. That entire sermon of five chapters was basically to develop one core idea that is so critical to Christianity. And it is this, that Christianity is not built on philosophical ideas, but that it is built on a historical event, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Christianity has lots of ideas, beautiful ideas that are different than other, beautiful theological ideas that are different than other faith systems. We are told to love, not just love others the way you would want to be loved, which always lets me down come Christmas time, you know? I would love lots of new kitchen appliances, so I buy them for my wife. No, I don't do any of that. I don't do any of that. But you could see how that wouldn't be good news for you. But uh, you see what I mean? Not love as you would want to be loved, but what does Christianity teach? Love one another even as Christ has loved you. It's a very different method of teaching. And if, you've ever, if you ever want to see how radical the teachings of Jesus are, you can just go to Matthew chapter 5 through 7 and read Jesus' most famous sermon, his Sermon on the Mount, and you will see that he is full of radical teaching, right? You have heard it said, thou shalt not murder. But I'd say unto you, I just can't help myself. Do you know where it said, thou shalt not murder? The Ten Commandments. You have heard it said, thou shalt not murder, but I say to you, if you even look at another person with hatred in your heart, you have committed murder. You have heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. We won't talk about that one. Let's just move on. All right. But you know what it says. I can't help myself. But I say unto you, if you even look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. I went, to the, I went to the theater yesterday, and I have season passes, my wife and I, and the show was Chicago. What do I do with that? You know, I just, you, anyway. But anyway, that was not my favorite play. But nonetheless, that whole sermon, in which I've said many distracting things to you, that whole sermon last week was to establish the thought The idea that the concrete foundation upon which Christianity is built is not our ideas, but our theology. Or not our ideas, but an event. The event that Jesus in history came as God in the flesh, that he died, that he rose from the dead, and we long to the historical event when Jesus will come again and restore and renew and remake all things. That is the bedrock foundation of Christianity. And the ideas of how we are to treat each other flow out of that. Now, we found ourselves in Acts chapter 6. The events of Acts chapter 6 take place approximately a year later. This is, there's no uh, temporal temporal, um, indicator in our text. This is what most scholars believe through studying, that these events take take place a year after Peter's sermon at Pentecost and the events that we looked at in chapter 1 through 5, all which take place days, if not weeks, after Pentecost, 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus. Now we fast forward in the timeline of church history, and now we're a year later after Jesus' resurrection, and now the idyllic Uh, vision that we got of the church, of them sharing and meeting together and everything being hunky-dory, now for the first time in the book of Acts, we see real conflict arising within the church. And the conflict arises as a result of money. Isn't that often how it works? 
money has been received to these churches and it's been gathered to a unified collection point and it is being dispersed to help the people of the congregation who have needs. We have a very similar fund at our church that you can give to called the Good Samaritan Fund. And the elders use that money to help members of our congregation who have financial needs. Well, it's the same thing with this. Money was given, and then money would be dispersed to those who have financial needs. And in this way, the hope was that they could take care of the members of their congregations, the church, so that nobody would be without necessities, the things that they truly need. Well, as you see in our text in verse 1, as the number of the disciples are increasing, as the church is growing, there is an increasing amount of people within the congregation, and they're divided up into these two groups. There was the Hellenistic Jews and the Hebraic Jews. The Hellenistic Jews were simply the, the Jews that had adopted the culture and the language of the Greeks, and the Hebraic Jews were the Jews that spoke Hebrew. So there was kind of, they were all Jews, but there was a national racial type of uh, divide that existed on the basis of culture and language. And what was happening was that those who were in charge of dispersing the funds, and we're actually not even told who they were, but whoever was in charge of dispersing the funds, there was Uh, there was, whether it was real or perceived, there was a real or perceived conflict of the reality that the Hellenist Jews, the Greek-speaking Jews, believed that the Hebrew-speaking Jews were receiving preference as it related to the disbursement of these funds. Now, the most beautiful and abnormal thing happens when this um, conflict, when this complaint arises. The apostles, which are referred to as the 12 here, gather all of the disciples or the church together for a big, I guess, congregational business meeting. And at this congregational business meeting, the disciples say, listen, we do not want this to happen. The the apostles, we do not want this to happen. We will give over to men that you choose or people that you choose the disbursement of these funds. Do you see how radical that is? When is it, have you ever met someone in power when they say, well, we have a complaint about the use of your power and the men just say, well, we don't need that power anymore. You choose someone else to have that power. (laughs) That almost never happens in life, is it? But not only does that happen, something even more radical than that happens. The congregational business meeting made up of Hebrews and Hebrew-speaking Jews and Greek-speaking Jews decides to make up a council of seven men They were called deacons. And all of the men on that council were made up of Hellenist-speaking, Greek-speaking Jews. The equivalent of this would be, and I know this is probably charged, but the equivalent of this would be our president saying, we have an immigration problem and naming a council to deal with it that is exclusively Mexican, right? No amens for that, right? This would be the equivalent of affirmative action where African Americans believe that they're being mistreated and them create the people in power creating a council made up of only African Americans. What this text is telling us about Christianity is that Christianity is not about preserving power. In fact, power in Christianity is meant to be used to serve other people. That's it. People in power often leverage their authority and their power to do what? Serve themselves. 
serve themselves. If, uh, if somebody's making copies at the copier and the big head man needs to make copies, he says, get off the copier so I can make copies. If the big man wants coffee, he sends the little man or woman to get coffee, right? This is how most people in power use power. And yet, the apostles, when confronted with an inequity that we don't even know if it's real or perceived, just say, you know what? We have one concern. Well, actually, it's two, and you can actually see it. Well, we don't care about the power of who gets to disperse the funds. We just don't want our time to be taken up with it because, verse 2, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word in order to wait on tables or to disperse these funds. Instead, you choose, in verse 4, we will give our attention to the ministry of the word and to prayer. This proposal pleased the whole group, and as already mentioned, they chose a council of seven men, deacons, who were exclusively Greek-speaking Jews to disperse these funds. And as a result, verse 7, we get these all throughout the book of Acts. We get this summary statement, and so the word of God spread, and the number of those who were disciples or those who believed in Jesus in Jerusalem continued to grow rapidly. And a large number of priests even became obedient to the faith. Now, narratively, in this function of this story, this little story serves to introduce these seven men, two of which we get more details about. And this sermon is really about the first of the two men, deacons, who we are told about. Now, the fascinating thing about these deacons, you can see in the list, it's in verse 5, the list is Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and then Philip, and so on. This list um, serves to tell us that these men came to prominence, but their original role, the reason they came to power, was to serve tables and to disperse these funds. But, but, when we hear about Stephen and Philip, the only two of the seven in which we hear about, what we hear about them is that they are doing a very similar type of ministry to the ministry of the apostles. For actually what they're doing is doing signs and miracles, and they are preaching with words of power, the word of God. And so that is exactly what we see. We move from the problems within the church that are resolved peacefully and in such a way that the church grows. We now move to a problem within the church where Stephen is introduced and where he is vehemently opposed, strongly opposed. We see in verse 8, That Stephen was a man full of the grace of God and of power, and he performed miracles and signs among the people. But he also taught, for he taught, and the people who opposed him that are introduced to us in verse 9 were opposing him because they believed, or at least they wanted to believe, that he was anti-speaking messages and sermons that were against the law of Moses and were against the temple. In that context... The Jewish faith was centered around the law of Moses and was centered around the temple. And so what they are accusing Stephen of is tantamount to blasphemy. That's certainly what their accusation is. Well, Stephen responds to their accusations. And we are told in verse 10 that these men, as as Stephen is responding to them, could not begin to argue with Stephen because they could not stand up against his wisdom, which the Spirit gave him as he spoke. And so, what all men do when words don't work and their power is threatened, 
is they began to use force through lies. Yes? Force through lies. Now, before I tell you about their lies a little bit more, I want to make sure you understand. Verse 9 introduces us to the opposition to Stephen. And it says that the opposition is from the synagogue of the freedmen. There were synagogues throughout Jerusalem that had arisen, and these were people within the church community that are still in the most earliest year after Christ is risen from the dead that are trying to understand now that Christ is risen from the dead, what is different? What has changed? And in many ways, throughout if the, the study of church history, throughout the study of church history, for years and years, and even to this day, we are trying to figure out the implications of what does it mean now that Christ is risen from the dead? And so these men, who are kind of pseudo a part of the church, begin to oppose Stephen. And I've noticed often that opposition to the church often comes most frequently from within, doesn't it? Opposition often most, comes, most often comes from within. I've talked to many, many, many pastors, and very rarely, especially in, in America, in our Western culture, very rarely are we persecuted in the church from those outside of the church. It happens. And some people interpret persecution a little different than I would, but it rarely happens. Of course, we hear of the activities of ISIS, and of course, Christians throughout our world are being persecuted uh, for their faith. But in America, it very frequently happens, infrequently happens. In America and in our Western culture, most often the opposition in the church comes from within the church, that we are often our own worst enemies. That we are meant as a church to be able to resolve our differences and our bond that we have in Jesus is supposed to be, as my wife said a couple weeks ago as we were talking, the most important and bond that overcomes anything. But yet opposition most often arises from within. And here the opposition to Stephen arises from a congregation, um, the synagogue of the freedmen, that should be on his team. And instead, because Stephen, his existence, his messages, because they threaten their power structures, they begin to oppose him. I want, to know, I want you to notice something else in this text, that the opposition by these men is known to be by these men false. In other words, we see in verse 11 that these men from the, the synagogue of the freedmen began to secretly persuade men to falsely testify against Stephen. In verse 13, they produced false witnesses who would testify and say two accusations, that he speaks against this holy place, the temple, and he speaks against the law, specifically the law of Moses. The ironic thing here is, perhaps if you remember from your Sunday school days, and if you memorize the Ten Commandments, that the Ninth Commandment of the Ten Commandments goes something like this. I don't expect you all to remember this. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor, right? So in the very accusation that Stephen is breaking the law, to which they know he is not, and we, they know he's, that's not his teaching because it says that, they are breaking the law themselves. Do you see the irony? And they bring Stephen before what is called the Sanhedrin, which was a group of ruling class within Israel, religious ruling class made up of 70 men. 
And in this context, Stephen gives his sermon or his speech, which isn't really a sermon, but more of a a defense that he is giving in front of a court. Yeah, that's the context for this sermon. And notice that while the false witnesses know that Stephen has not said the things that they're saying, while the men of the freed synagogue uh, know he has not said the things that they are accusing him of, Even the Sanhedrin itself, we are told in verse 15, looks at Stephen and what they see is a man of innocence whose face looks like an angel and yet nonetheless, both accusers and those who will decide his fate, the Sanhedrin, look at Stephen with hostility because Jesus, like Jesus before him, Stephen represents an idea represents Jesus that threatens the very power upon which they stand. And so, I've noticed in life, and you've probably noticed this too, right? That humanity has an uncanny ability to ignore truth, especially the truth of God. That we see what we want to see. That we believe what we want to believe so that we can do what we want to do. Have you noticed this? I had one pastor tell me once that when he counsels, nine out of ten people he counsels will not do what he says in the end. They come to him asking, what is the will of God? And I'm not trying to be harsh. I've just heard it said. Nine out of ten will say, what is the will of God? And they know that the pastor is trying to do what's best for him, but they want to do what they want to do, and they seek to find a way to do what they want to do, right? What is the will of God for which car I should buy? The biggest, fastest, most awesome one. You see? God, which house should I buy? The biggest one with the best gadgets, right? You see what I mean? How should I live with my girlfriend? They always figure out a way for that one. You see what I mean? That goes back to Chicago a little bit. (laughs) They know what to do, but they find a way to do what they want. Humanity has an uncanny ability to ignore the truth of God. All you have to do is watch a sitcom and you can see this. This isn't even a distinctly Christian idea. Every single sitcom I've ever seen would show us that we fall into the most ridiculous behavioral patterns that we know will destroy us and yet we do it anyway. Why? We just have to kind of be honest for a second because we want to. And so, Stephen finds himself on the platform speaking to a group of men, 70 of them to be exact, who look at him with hostility because he threatens them. And behind him is an audience made up of his accusers, the men, potentially the women from the synagogue of the freedmen. And in front of him and behind him is a hostile audience. Do you see how this sermon is not like what I'm doing right now. You mostly like me. (laughs) There's probably a few of you who don't, but you mostly like me. You want to hear from me, sort of, and you're hoping it's over soon, but you want to hear from me. Stephen is called to give an account on two issues, your anti-law and your anti-temple. Speaking to men who want to convict him with an audience of people who have brought him to accuse him that want him dead. 
And Stephen does the most peculiar thing. He doesn't even defend himself. In fact, if anything, his sermon is nothing. The most uh, cursory reading of this text would show you this. His sermon is not defensive in nature at all. It is offensive in nature. And let me show you what I mean. Stephen does not respond to these charges, anti-law or anti-temple. First, anti-law. Stephen in his sermon says a couple of different things that show you very clearly that he is pro-law. He says first, if you see it in uh, Acts chapter 7, Let me look at the verse real quick. Acts chapter 7, verse 38. He says at the very end that the words that Moses received on Mount Sinai were living words, which he passed down to us. But then he goes on and says, and our ancestors refused to obey them in verse 39. And in verse 53, he says, and you have received the law and you have not obeyed it. Stephen's point is, I am not anti-law, you are. When he speaks about the temple, the second accusation, he never really refers to the temple per se, specifically. He talks about how God's presence has revealed himself. And he talks about how God has revealed himself to Abraham, how he's revealed himself to Moses and to Joseph. But his point is that God can reveal himself anywhere, anytime, to all kinds of different people. He's not anti-temple in this way, saying that God's presence isn't in the temple. He is pro-God's presence wherever God's presence chooses to be made known. So what is Stephen's speech all about? If it is not a defense of the charges of a man quaking in fear and trying to convince so-and-so that he is not anti-law and anti-temple, then what is it? To a hostile audience before him and a hostile audience behind him, here is how his speech goes. Stephen, like me, loves history, and so Stephen tells a long historical lesson. I'll summarize it for you extremely briefly. He starts with Abraham and said, God appeared to him and sent him to a land I will show you. And he was the father of Isaac, then Jacob, then Joseph. And Joseph God appeared to him in a dream and gave him a vision, the very words of God. And you know what his brothers did, who God appeared to him? Threw him in a pit and sent him into slavery. This same Joseph, who God appeared to, the Israelites did not listen to. And so he was sent into Egypt. But the blessing of God cannot be thwarted by the will of man. And so Joseph rose to prominence and he was made the second in command, second only to Pharaoh in all the land of Egypt. And finally, his brothers acknowledged him and they were reunited. After 400 years of the Israelites being in captivity in Israel, God raised and appeared to another man. His name was Moses and told him that you will be the deliverer of the Israelites. But the people of Israel did not listen to Moses. They did not listen to him when he came to the defense of the Israelites as the Egyptians were enslaving them. Instead saying to Moses, who made you Lord and judge? And when Moses had finally led them out of the Red Sea, They said to themselves, the Israelites, we had it better when we were in Egypt. And who is this Moses who led us out of Egypt? Would you, Aaron, who was Moses' brother, make us a golden calf so we could worship it instead? Stephen then goes on to say that the temple is not God's dwelling place. 
but God's dwelling place is the world. And that God has had a repeated pattern, and so has humanity. God raises up leaders, and Israel rejects them. And now we come to the climax of his little speech. It is so awesome. Verse 51. Remember, these are the people that have the authority to kill him. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. Now, you wouldn't understand the significance of what he's saying here, but circumcision was one of the major markers of the Jewish nation. That's kind of, I've always thought that weird, because anyway, <laughs> that's so weird to me. But anyway, because didn't you wear underwear and clothes and stuff? But anyway, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. The imagery here is, You may be physically a Jew, but spiritually, you are not. You are just like your ancestors. You always, not sometimes, this isn't good, this isn't good speech, they say in counseling, you know, with your husband and wife. You always do. No, you say, I feel like when you do this, it makes me feel like this. You see what I mean? Sarah, when you did that, I'm not sure if you meant to, but it made me feel, you see, you always resist the power of the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not prosecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the Holy and Righteous One. Isaiah is maybe the most famous traditionally this way, who King Manasseh ordered to be sawn in two as he was alive, which does not sound like a good way to go. But then, not only did you murder those who proclaimed the coming of the Holy and Righteous One, but do you see what he says next? You now have betrayed and murdered him, the Holy and Righteous One. You who received the law that was mediated by angels have not obeyed it. Have not obeyed it. The point of Stephen's speech, right, is not, I I promise you, it may sound crazy and it may sound intense, but the point of Stephen's speech, like the preaching of all sin, this is why sin is such an important topic, is always to cause humanity to repent. And when you hear you've been in the wrong, you can have two reactions. You can power up and get defensive, or you can say, I screwed up, forgive me. In a marriage, I recommend the latter. And in your relationship with God, I really recommend the latter. There's an awesome, awesome story. We're going to look at it in May. Uh, The story of who's called kind of the prodigal prophet or the reluctant prophet. We're going to look at the story of Jonah. But Jonah was given a message to take to an evil, evil nation, the Assyrians, and the capital of Assyria, Nineveh. And his message that God tells him to give is really interesting. Here's the message. In 40 days, you will be destroyed. There is not in 40 days, if you repent, you will, if you don't repent, you'll be destroyed. The message is simply put, in 40 days, God is going to crush and destroy you. And you know what happens. I'm, not, I'm kind of giving away my entire series, but that's okay. And f- the king of Assyria, the most wicked nation on earth at that time, I could tell you tons of stories about the atrocities of the Assyrians. 
The foremost of which was every nation they took over, they bred their nationality right out of them. That's how we got the Samaritans, but that's for another sermon, another day. I just can't help myself with this stuff. The Ninevites, the king of the Ninevites, the king of the Assyrians, when he hears the message of Jonah, in 40 days you'll be destroyed. Do you know what he does? He repents in sackcloth and ashes. And God does not destroy them. Because the preaching of sin is never the preaching of making us feel guilty. Because unlike what Freud tried to teach us, guilt is not a made-up thing in our heads where it's just something we have to get rid of. But guilt and sin destroys you. And the preaching of sin is the preaching of the, is the opportunity for you to turn and move in the other direction, which is exactly what the church did when it was founded. You killed him. God raised him. What are you going to do? They repented and the church was found. Now, Stephen before the Sanhedrin, <laughs> you killed him and you do not obey. And we see the reaction. And when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth. This imagery of gnashing of the teeth is not really like, they may have been grinding their teeth. It is like their whole body went physically tense in anger, right? They were furious and they gnashed their teeth. And what happens? Stephen looks up and says, I see God and I see him in heaven. And God gives him this vision and he opens up the heavens. And the Sanhedrin, which is like the supreme court, it is like the high and noble and dignified and educated men of Israel. They kill Stephen in a common lynching where they are overcome by their violent passion at what he has said. And they rush him out into the streets without even a verdict or a conclusion to the trial. And they throw stones at him until he is dead. And before he dies, Stephen says, Father, forgive them of their sins, just like Jesus. And the text beautifully says, and Stephen fell asleep, right? As if death for the Christian is nothing more than falling asleep until the resurrection of us all when Christ comes. And we are all made new, all made right. Not just humanity, but the world itself. And as all this is happening, narratively, we are introduced to another character, which we're going to look at in a couple weeks. The character of Saul, who later becomes the Apostle Paul, who had witnessed the whole thing that Stephen was, the whole trial of Stephen and his death by stoning, And he was satisfied with what happened. And at the stoning of Stephen, a great persecution arises. A great persecution arises. And the church, which had known a relative year of safety, is now persecuted and hunted down and killed. Starting with the leading character of this charge, who is Saul. But you know what happens, which always happens this way. The persecution of the church does not lead to the church uh, being destroyed, but rather the church is strengthened and built. Because here's what happens, and it's so logical. It just makes so much sense. As those Jewish leaders who opposed those Jewish Christians and tried to kill them, and as they're being killed in Jerusalem, those who were remaining 
decided, I don't think it's safe for me anymore in Jerusalem. And so they leave, right? And they scatter to Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. And when they go to those parts of the earth, what do you think they do? They share the good news of the gospel that Jesus is the crucified, resurrected, coming again, Son of God. And as a result, the persecution of the church is not the end of the church, but as Tertullian said, the ancient church father, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And as we will see in the book of Acts, as the gospel moves forward, the church thrives, not necessarily in peace, not necessarily in security and safety, but it thrives. Not because men and women were willing to die for good teaching given by Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, but because they were convinced that this same Jesus who taught us all kinds of new ideas was Lord, was very God of very God, and because they had seen him die and rise from the dead. As you kind of process this and as you leave, I want to challenge you to think through this text. I want you to think through it on a couple different angles. First, what is your perspective on power? How do you view power? In the way that God's will works, power is never meant to be used to serve you, but to serve others. Second, what are you in opposition to and how do you oppose it? And for those of us who are part of the church, how is our behavior strengthening or weakening the church? The church is the strongest when it is unified, where the main thing's the main thing, that Jesus is the crucified, resurrected, coming again, Son of God. Third, what areas in your life do you know, whether that's, whether that's, Implicitly no or explicitly no, right? You know, there's the man who buys a plane ticket to go and have an affair with another woman. It's hard to argue he just made a mistake, right? He planned and purchased. But there's other ways where we implicitly don't stop long enough to think about what we are doing wrong, but we keep ourselves busy enough so that we don't have that time to think because we like what we're doing. What areas in your life are you wrong in and you are consciously or unconsciously and purposefully remaining in the non-knowing state? Does this make sense? I got some advice for you on that, and it's the fourth thing. Stop it, right? The preaching of sin is always an opportunity for repentance, to change. And do you know what is on the other side of change? The glory of God and the pleasure of yourself. Yeah? Let me pray for you. Father, we're so grateful for the love that you showed us in Jesus, who while we were still sinners, died for us. Help us to understand the beauty of who you are through the person of Jesus Christ so that we might be transformed by his love and so that we might display it to others. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.